In this episode, my colleague Steve Nelson and James Fitzgerald, big hitting journalist at CityWire, talk through with me the state of the platform world. We have a chat about pricing, service, competition, the consumer duty. There's an inevitable reference to the advice guidance boundary and a bit of a diversion into pole vaulting. I hope you enjoy it. start with the state of the platform nation and would you be kind enough just to give give us a sense of what what's your kind of high level thoughts on the state of the market at the moment before we dig into some of some of the detail uh god that's a big question for a quick summary tom but yeah Yeah. it's an interesting market it's never not been interesting it's more diverse i think than it gets i was going to say credit for credit's probably not the right word but there's of the you know roughly 25 or so platforms that we assess and who come into our kind of data warehouse and our tooling they are fundamentally different structures behind the scenes so you've got some vertically integrated you've got some who have different business lines you've got some who are parts of wider organizations you've got some who would define themselves as purely a platform operator so there's all kinds of interesting stuff behind the scenes before you even get into the ownership complexity and changes and replatformings and all that kind of stuff. But it, purely in business terms, if you were to look at 2021 in isolation, it'd be a pretty good year, really. The majority of platforms are exhibiting good growth indicators. So some of them quite astonishing new growth indicators. So if you look at net new business, so money in, net of money out again, there's a, a big chunk of providers that are almost in triple digit growth in terms of net new flows. So on the face of it, absolutely great. And then when we look at your growth of the sector as a whole, net new flows year on year in 2021 was somewhere around 50%, I think just just above 50%. Now, a lot of what underpins that is naturally the markets. So the the markets did relatively well in, in 2021. If you look at various bits and bobs that you can use as proxies, for the market. So MSCI World Index, FTSE Index, Standard & Poor's, etc., etc. They're all doing roughly 15 to 20% or so year on year. So it's not the case that the, the platform sector and net new business is wholly underpinned by market performance. There's clearly other factors at play there. So just a, a kind of glance, been a pretty good period of time for the platform sector, considering all the stuff that's going on behind the scenes in the wider world. Yeah, interesting. And James, sorry, I, just, I didn't want to shut you out of this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from your point of view, I mean, you're looking at it from, I guess, from the point of view of your readers. So that's manufacturers, but also the advisor sector. I mean, I kind of agree with Steve. From what I'm seeing and hearing, it looks pretty healthy. There's a lot of activity going on. Does that echo what, what you see from your perspective? Very much so. Uh, a lot of the feedback last year was was very, very good. And in terms of the results from majority of the platforms, really, after a bit of a rough 2020 for, for obvious reasons, it was a bit of a bumper 2021 all the way through to the end of the last quarter. But in regards, very interesting, the start of this year, I mean, there's you know, quite a lot going on in the wider world, as Steve mentioned. Things do kind of look, for a couple of platforms at least, like they're slowing down in this first quarter. I mean, Quilter's inflows stalled in the first quarter of this year. AJ Bell wasn't exactly rosy as well. And Quilt CEO Paul Feeney put that down to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and kind of the, the market instability in regards to that. But there's also a bit of you know, investor sentiment amid the you know, cost of living crisis in the UK as well, probably has something to do with it a little bit. 
and a few people tightening their belts. So there are some signs that I'm hearing around the traps and going on results uh, over the past few weeks that the first quarter probably wasn't as good as a lot of people hoped after a bumper 2021. Yeah, Um, because both those firms you mentioned, Quilter and AJ Bell, both had pretty good years last year, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Quilter's flows were something like 133% up you know, the last half of last year or similar to that. And they were a bit disappointed when I was reading their results last week or the week prior that they thought that moment, that flow momentum would carry into this year. But, you know, obviously geopolitical events have kind of kind of marred that a bit and investor sentiment as well. So it's been a bit of a rough few months so far. So I was really interested in one of the things you brought out in your report, Steve. The four metrics you came up with to look at the health of the platform sector and you looked at relative performance and that looked pretty good. And the net new business number, which you just referenced there, you know, strip out market performance. Does net new business still look good? And 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 yes, it did, which would be music to the ears of marketing directors listening to this podcast up and down the land, because they could argue that they're doing a good job. And mostly, you know, the sector's making money. I thought your point about a healthy sector reinvests for the future, and that there's not so much of that going on. And that it's mostly driven by necessity rather than innovation and growth. I thought that was kind of interesting that maybe the sector, you know, that's something to keep an eye on. It is, yeah. I mean, there's a number of factors at play there, Tom. I mean, I've been, I was looking at calendars the other day and terrifyingly, there's a crossover point in the summer where the Landcat becomes my longest job uh, in history, which is, don't, don't you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying not to think about it. Yeah, but that, that in the summer, it will be nine years that I've been looking at the platform sector in depth. And even in that short space of time, you know, what have we had? We've had PS13-1, so the great unbundling and all the clean share class and super clean share class and rebate business. We've had pension freedoms, which I gather was a big deal. We've had MIFID 2, which I gather was a big deal as well. We've had, you know, the, the great mobilization to remote working a couple of years ago. And you know, it's, a, it's a big deal for development teams to kind of constantly be in this pattern of reactive change. And I was speaking to, you know, I don't need to name who it was, but it was one of the, the heads of platform, a, a pretty big platform organization, who was saying, you know, touch wood and, you know, crossing every finger that he had, that this is the first time in a while where it's not felt like, you know, obviously consumer duty aside, and we might chat about that later, but there's not been a huge forced regulatory or otherwise change on the horizon. So we might be in a, or certainly looking at a period of time where the, the kind of circumstances are lining up to, to mean that there's maybe more breathing space to innovate. Because really, when you look at the last 12 months, last 24 months, the development schedules have still been dominated by, you know, ongoing tweaks to disclosure and MIFID 2 you know, sweep ups from replatforming exercises. It's almost like snagging lists on your house. You know, you, you do the huge exercise and you realize you've still got 15 or 20 things still to fix. You know, and, and the, as James hinted at earlier, the digital signature and digital process stuff that's been, that's been implemented. So, you know, hopefully we're about to enter a period of time where we start to see real meaningful change driving the sector forward. Maybe, hopefully. That's, that's really interesting. Because I was struck by... Again, you know, you guys are the experts here, so I'm just going off what you wrote in your report mostly. But um, first of all, we've got a real diversity of just shapes of participants in the marketplace. You know, you've got the really big boys with perhaps up to only 100 billion, lots of money under under administration, but also some really small players. And, and 
an average portfolio size is vary quite a lot. I think the, the average came out at about three hundred thousand. But again, you know, within that, there's there's some some platforms with much higher numbers and some with lower numbers. But what did strike me was the charging levels are pretty consistent, and and you're looking at around sort of twenty five to thirty five bips as being that's broadly the window that platforms are charging for their services, and that therefore it's it's not you know. Service is, service is more important than price. And, you know, obviously, you, you've got to get price right. And if you're an outlier, that might be an issue one way or the other. But really, it's service that's driving customer loyalty, advisor loyalty, business flows, and, and getting getting the base right. I mean, we talked mentioned Transact, you know, they seem remarkably good at just doing the basics really well. So then I guess my question off the back of all of that is, can the market continue to support so many platforms? Can they all get their voice heard with a limited supply of new business? It's a really interesting question, Tom, and, and I guess the, there's a number of different things to say to that. The first one is that, again, I, I referred earlier to my nine years in, in looking at the, the, the platform sector, and there were a number of predictions made a number of years ago, and, and I can recall specifically one or two of them, who were very bold in saying, you know, in, you know, arbitrary round number period of time, five or 10 years, there will only be four or five platforms in the UK. And guess what? You fast forward and yeah, there's been a couple of consolidations. There's been a few sales, but there's been just as many new entrants to, to replace that peer group. So it would appear to be the case that the market can sustain over a period of time a peer group that consists of 20 or so platforms in the sector, and the majority of which, despite other assertions in the in the market, the majority of them make money. If you know, you look at the reporting accounts, and you know, you often can't get to a, a segregated, nice round profit figure that that relates specifically to the platform operation. So you need to do a little bit of jiggery pokery, as we like to say in Scotland, and creative assumptions here and there. But the majority of them do make money on an ongoing basis, or are on the path to make money with their own business cases. So I personally, and others might have a different view, I don't personally see the set of circumstances where in the next, certainly in the short to medium term, there will be a handful of providers in the platform sector. To take your point around the kind of dynamic between service and price, it is a really good one. Service to me is just a proxy for people. I mean, these technology and the replatforming exercises and the 500 different proposition points might gather the headlines, but fundamentally under the bonnet, they are people organizations. And I think either yourself or, or James hinted earlier of the success of Transact. Well, fundamentally, the success of Transact through the years has been because it is or has certainly since I've been looking at the sector, been chock-a-block full of outstanding people who deliver good service to, to their user base. So, yeah, it, it is an interesting one, Tom, but I, I just don't see, I don't take the view that it's about sustaining a magic round number of providers. I think it's, a, by and large, a thriving sector that's full of many, many different business models. Yeah, and I mean, and James, I know you've got some thoughts on this. The I guess part of the evidence of that is the interest shown in the sector by the private equity investors, you know, which would suggest that there's gold in them, their hills, right? Well, very much so. I mean... I think the idea with all this private equity movement that we've seen over the past few years, I mean, it's it's a, a profitable sector and it's a vibrant sector. And I think with Steve's point too, I can't really see, I mean, yes, it's been the flurry of private equity deals, but I can't see that the market contracting that much. I mean, 
it's so innovative and it's you know technology based as well. So there's always going to be new players coming into the market, offering value and service, especially the smaller boutique platforms. I think though it's a bit of their their own success, platforms' own success, especially the small ones, means that they're always going to be attractive to private equity backers. Across there's there's not that many now throughout the entire market that doesn't have some sort of backing by a PE firm. I mean the amount of change over the past two years has been been astronomical. And that's just due to the, the sector's success, really. And I think the point of private equity backing too, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. They want to pump the money in to you know, really you know, upgrade the tech, upgrade the service, you know, even get costs down, but they also need to make money. And there's an argument where you know, scale equals you know, cheaper to run, or mm. many think anyway. But it just really depends, as Steve said, on, on that service level too. And we're, we're kind of witnessing at the moment that service over the past few years, isn't all that's cracked up to me. There's, as again, like we keep coming up with Transact, but that's that's a bit of an outlier at the moment. And with, with all the money coming in and all the changes, especially with the consumer duty, which I'm sure I'll mention later, coming in too, you know, there's a lot on platforms and providers to do lists, and that costs money. So it's kind of to be seen at the moment whether that private equity money will actually lead to positive change for advising consumers in terms of service. But yeah, you know, it's, it's watch this space really. Yeah, and I mean that, that's really interesting. And, and you know, on the on the service front, yes, it's people, but also the technology. I mean, things like running phase drawdown or sort of having managing people's pots of money where there's some taxed income and some tax free income and multiple pots going on in parallel, and getting systems right that allow the customers to do what they want to do with that kind of stuff. It turns out isn't always easy, right? And mm, some mm. platforms have struggled with that stuff. So. Yeah. And just by the way, on, on Transact, I mean, coming back to the price thing, are we kind of reaching a floor now? Does the price keep going down? And I'm just really struck by looking at the way Transact, you know, always just shaving another little bit off, shaving another little bit off, and they keep bringing the price down. And it just reminded me, do you guys remember that pole vaulter, Sergei Bubka? Does that name mean anything to you? It does, yeah, it does. It yeah. does to... to um a middle-aged Scotsman, anyway. Who... A little bit before my time, but it does ring a bell. <laughs> so, like, in the mid-80s, mid-80s to mid-90s, I should think, this guy, Sergei Bubka, who was, at the time, came under the sort of USSR, but then more recently Ukrainian, he was just, like, the dominant force in pole vaulting. He was just, like, way ahead of everybody else. And But he set something like 30, 35 world records, and every time he'd just shave another centimetre or add another centimetre onto the bar. And he never never came along and went, all right, I'm going to stick 10 centimetres on this time. He was always just like incremental stuff. And, mm. and, and, and you know, it feels like that's what Transact are doing with their pricing. You know, they never come along and say, oh, we're just going to slide 10 bips off our price. No, no, it's always it's always it's a basis point here and there. That's just, you know, but how much yeah. further, how much, I guess the question is, how much further can this go? Uh, to be honest, Tom, I'm still thinking about pole vaulting. Yeah. That's all I can think about right now. I once had a, I once, I once had a really, a really kind of strange. I'll, I'll promise this is my only pole vaulting anecdote. But I once had a really interesting conversation with Phil Young, who many listeners will know. To offer, I think he runs Zero Support Consultancy and X Three Sixty Services MD, and he had a theory about pole vaulting that the world record, something like the world record, had a long way to go, and that's because hardly anybody does pole vaulting. Mm. So there's like all these potentially world-class pole vaulters throughout the world who just have never taken it up because it's like 
fundamentally a ridiculous thing to be doing. Whereas, but I mean, you, know, you could say, apply, apply the same principles to rapidly turning into an athletics podcast. You know, look at look at the hundred meters, and then one day Usain Bolt rocks up, and all of a sudden takes a huge amount, relatively, off 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 the hundred meters. You know, and and you know, running as fast as you can. Right. I mean, that, that you can go back to the ancient Greek Olympics in eight hundred BC, and they were doing that then, weren't they? So. Yeah, I mean... But I like your theory. It kind of has some plausibility to it. <laughs> but to actually answer your question, Tom, I mean, the, the, so, I mean, f- from Transact's perspective, it's a great strategy, isn't it? You know, you make a bit of money, you take a little bit off the price. You make a bit more money, you take a little bit off the price. So it's it, just, just the most common sense and rational and, and agreeable thing to be doing in the world. I mean, there's clearly... You know, we once made a joke in one of our guys that we plotted it on a graph and we can look forward to being paid by Transact in 2052 or whenever it was when that strategy runs out. But you're right, there is clearly a kind of inflection point where it can't go any lower on a basis point, basis to excuse the, the double word there. But it feels like there's a little bit to go. There's still enough processes out there can be streamlined. There still feels like there's too much in terms of manual operation behind the scenes, of which Transact are one of the kind of core group who still have a lot of the a, a bit of a way to go in terms of signature free processes and stuff like that and it's interesting yeah. that for the first time ever we've started to see a little bit of negative sentiment coming through towards transact who have for mm. so long been like the the poster the child boys, for yeah, yeah. yeah the poster child for the platform sector and you know they would win every award going if they entered them and all that the kind transact of stuff. awards are being transact yeah <laughs> well exactly yeah so it's is it, you know it's taken a global pandemic and you know a, a, a work from home bombshell to to take a bit of the shine off that. But still, still really good positive scores. I mean, oh let's, totally. Let's, I mean, let's not run Transact down here. They're still doing pretty well, right? Oh, they're still top in terms of sentiment when we do our our annual you know, favorability ratings and stuff like that. So it's you know it's it's coming from an extraordinarily good position. But it's just interesting to see that kind of stuff leak through. But to, to take your point, uh, to answer your point completely tom yes there's probably a little bit to go and certainly when you look at special deal making behind the scenes mm. which we you know because of the commercial sensitivity of those deals we we don't see full disclosure of many of them but we do capture via our state of the advisor nation study the kind of degree to which special deal making happens and there's something like six in ten firms that have some kind of special terms in place for at least their primary or one of their secondary relationships. So it does happen all over the place behind but the scenes. But every, everybody likes a special deal, right? Everybody likes to feel they've negotiated special terms. I mean, that's never going to go away, is it? Yeah. Unless, I mean, unless the FCA bans it, right? Yeah, unless they ban it. And, you know, the the platform market, sorry, the investment platform market study from the FCA kind of came and went and most existing business practices held firm. So I don't see the set of circumstances by which that's going to change. I mean, a lot of it is just commercial reality you know and do you guys do you guys think there's room for an alliance trust fixed price menu type approach to come back again could we could we see anyone make that fly i mean mostly the evidence would suggest otherwise but is there room for it i might hand up all this one to save yeah i the tricky I, questions <laughs> <laughs> again it's, it's a bit of copy paste from the the previous answer i can't I'm, i struggle to see the set of circumstances where that comes back in any real meaningful way. I mean, there are some providers who have a, a bit of a hybrid model going on, but they're, they're fundamentally underpinned by basis points charging. Yeah. You know, you've got Aegon who have the cap 
still the only real mainstream price cap in the sector where I think so this is on Agar retirement choices if you have a portfolio size in excess of 250 grand it's the the charging stops but that still works out over a grand a year for a customer so it's not like they're paying it's not like what we see in D2C for example but I yeah I struggle to see the set of circumstances where that would return, if I'm honest. So, okay. So we've referenced consumer duty a couple of times already. How big a deal is this going to be? I'm just going to leave that out there for one of you to jump up. Do you want to take that, James? Yeah, no, yeah. I threw you under the bus before, so I'll probably get this one (laughs) now. It's my turn. Consumer duty is a a funny one. It is a step in the right direction. I mean, you know, good consumer outcomes are good for everybody, really, especially consumers that goes under the name. But it's an interesting time for platform land. I mean, they've gone through quite a lot of change, as Steve re- referenced earlier, and especially over the pandemic in regards to, you know, everyone working from home and tech. But, you know, it's one, it's one thing saying, you know, we want good consumer outcomes and value for consumers, but it all goes back to service as well. I mean, charges are one thing, but you've actually got to prove it's worth it. I don't think a lot of platforms, especially from what I'm hearing and what we referenced a couple of times, they're not actually doing it that well at the moment and haven't been for a couple of years. It just isn't happening. There's, you know, there's there's not enough money to to pump into both tech and service and getting the right people on board, or it's just taking it just takes a while. And I think it's kind of the latter. And yes, there has been a lot of improvements over the past couple of years since we all you know, went to lockdown and everyone freaked out. But now you know, these platforms actually have to invite, uh, abide by these regulations next year. And there's really not a lot of time. I mean, what is it now? The 25th of April. I mean, they've only got a year to get all their ducks in a row and to make sure that their service is to the right standard and they're, you know, they're charging, they're providing value for for advisors and clients. And I just think a year, well, 11, 12 months of what we've got until the consumer duty comes in is not really a lot of time. And I do think we'll struggle to see platforms and providers really ramp up their service propositions in this time frame. Interesting. Steve, do you want to add to that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one. And, and I think... A lot of what we've talked about in the past, Tom, particularly in our advisor research. So a lot of a lot of my life and a lot of my working life, sorry, is to try and do my best job to be faithful and authentic to the voice of the advice profession via all of our various research exercises. And what we have observed, this is a bit of a long-winded answer, but I think it's worth it for context. A lot of what we observe is this almost dysfunctional tripartite relationship between regulation, manufacturing, which in this instance is products and platforms, and the advice profession, where for for various reasons and various well-worn arguments and instances, there's a lack of faith between the profession and, and regulation, where the, the, the lines of communication, I think, are, are kind of broken down and a lot of what we see certainly in the verbatim comments even when we're not directly asking about regulation a lot of what comes through in our verbatim comments is you know if i had a magic wand i'd change the way we're regulated and and all that kind of stuff so we're approaching consumer duty not on the best grounding Mm. in terms of how the sector operates and communicates with each other and the kind of second part of that answer from my perspective is we've not collectively done a great job of communicating and being specific about regulatory change and a lot of it is abstracted away so like who would argue like what sane person within the sector or otherwise would argue that stuff needs to be communicated well stuff needs to be value for money 
consumers need to be treated well, et cetera, et cetera. All of that's you know, brilliant. Who's going to disagree with that? But what's going to be fascinating is what are the specific measures that need to be taken to A, demonstrate this, or B, you know, do better things and be more authentic for consumers. So clearly things like situations like, you know, you go every day on Twitter, which maybe that's not the best. rash step to start with, right? Maybe that's not the best use of your your time. Or you look at below the line comments that I'm sure, you know, takes up a lot of, you know, James's time in, in journalism. And you don't need to look too hard to find examples of, you know, ridiculous wait times on on the telephone or transfer times for policies and, and stuff like that. So one positive tangible change would be to bring in some form of regulation that, that try to address some of that stuff. And that would make a, a real meaningful difference to the profession's life, I think. But overall, I'm, I'm just wary through my you know, relatively limited, limited experience in the last 10 years or so in the platform sector. I'm, I just... I'm allergic to kind of abstracted, legal, non-specific language. I would much rather see real, meaningful, tangible change on even just one or two things to drive stuff forward. So that's that's kind of one of my worry beats. And may, maybe I'm worrying about nothing. Maybe it's going to be the cleanest, best piece of regulation we've ever seen in the sector. But that's my top five on Steve's worry list for this year. I suppose there always is that concern, isn't there, with, with regulations, especially when the FCA is concerned that it can be a bit wish-washy, dare I say it in terms of how things are implemented and put out. You know, as you said, it's all very legal and a bit all over the place sometimes and hard to interpret by anyone that's not the FCA. So I think, yeah, Steve said in that point, it's totally correct. And it needs to be some form of, you know, whether it be yearly, let's, put, let's just say yearly for now, whether it be a tick box exercise or, you know, disclosure exercise to, to really push these platforms and providers to, doing what the FCA wants it to do. But the FCA needs to be completely clear with its language and what it wants to do, in my opinion. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, like, okay, we all agree good good service, good customer service, doing the simple things well is highly desirable. I think regulating for that to happen and the specifics of how you define that and how you call uh, market participants to account for that and how you measure that is, is, is no simple task. And, you know, I think the FCA has a tendency to overthink things and doesn't always do things in the simplest way that it could. So I, I wait with interest to see what, what the next paper from the FCA on, on the consumer duty looks like in terms of farming up, firming up the regulation on this kind of stuff. Here's, here's a question for you, Tom, I guess. Sorry to put one back on you, but do you think these big regulatory initiatives and projects aim too high or are too lofty or too worthy in their goal at the kind of which compromises maybe smaller, more meaningful or more tangible bits of change. So why couldn't we get a situation where we agreed on a set of parameters, set of servicing parameters and mandated providers to publish service standards in a meaningful side-by-side agreed cross-party question? And you look at some of the work going on around value for money at the moment, and the thinking is heading very much in that direction. I think there's a couple of challenges to that. One is the FCA regulates a lot of firms, and they're not homogenous. And so defining outputs that can be consistent across the marketplace, across that spectrum of different business models, it's not simple, and I have some sympathy with the FCA over that. They have a really big task on their hands, I think. So, so there's that. 
I'm, I'm also, and I had a bit of a rant about this on, on one of my recent podcasts, I think the fact that there are all these overlapping lines of regulatory interest across the FCA, I mean, look at the value for money. You've got the FCA, the DWP, the pensions regulator. I don't know if the Treasury's really that into it, though nominally it, it landed in their purview as well. But you've got the DWP and the FCA and the pensions regulator all trying to work out what good looks like just on the value for money stuff because it crosses over boundaries. I think, you know, the, the consumer duty is an FCA initiative. But I think the, the intertwined regulatory regimes doesn't help here. Now, unwinding that is no small undertaking. So, you know, that's maybe we just got to deal with it. It is. I think it's also really interesting. The FCA is clearly not, it's going through a trend. I was going to say it's not a happy ship. And I, I, I'm like, I can't be sure that is the case. But I know a lot of people have left. <laughs> You've got staff going on strike, right? These are not good signs, right? So you've got all that going on. And, and meanwhile, they're trying to keep the, the, the ship moving forwards. And you've got some relatively new management there. So, so maybe they're just going through a bit of a transition phase at the moment. I personally, I think the consumer duty and the value for money, those two bits of regulation, could potentially drive forward a lot of change in the marketplace. But it is all going to come down to how they define it. It's, it's you know, the devil is in the detail. It's how they define it. And then how they gather that data and how they publish that data. Totally. And then I, I, I almost feel, you know, the value for money question has got so many well-worn and, and almost cyclical arguments around, well, who gets to decide what value for value for money is? Well, then ultimately it's a, it's a consumer, but then the consumer doesn't fully understand what it is they're purchasing. Then do they need to understand because that's why they've got a financial advisor? And do you know these this kind of pattern of conversation and argument mm. that we've all had in our heads probably hundreds of times part of it just makes me want to I to get back to you know writing another report on something else <laughs> thinking about something else <laughs> but, I mean, okay. do you know what i mean yeah yeah but it, it's, a, it's an unsolvable puzzle you well, know, I, mean, like I think from, from a consumer point of view a couple of observations there one is i think about the app that my former employers at harvard's lansdown provide for their customers it's pretty good you know you can do stuff you can it does what i want it to do right so I can I can look at the value of stuff. I can trade stuff. It's pretty efficient. It's you know I can't remember the last time it wasn't working for any reason. So f- for me as a customer, that's great. And if I need to go online, if I need to actually use a, a an internet portal to do stuff, that works too. I also think about the banking app that I use. And again, I mean, like you know, when they came along and said you don't even have to to to, to pay in checks anymore. Just take a photo of the check, and it'll get you. We can credit it to your account, so I can just do it from my own kitchen. That, now that's good. So can I just say I did that last week, courtesy of the Treasury. Thank you, Richie. And <laughs> I did it on my app for the first time, and it was it blew my mind. Yeah, you see, so that kind of, I mean, you know, and I'm sure there are a lot of people behind the scenes who had to do quite a lot of work to make that kind of stuff happen. But that to me is what good customer service looks like, you know. And if I need to talk to someone, can I talk to someone? You know, do they keep the lights on? You know. You can you can come up with metrics for that kind of stuff, I think. And I think that's I think that's I mean, it's not just the, the functionality, but it's also the basics like if I have to ring someone up to talk to someone, can I get through to them? And you know, you've talked about this before, Steve, and you know, trans- ending up spending half the day on the phone trying to talk to your to your product provider. So I think some of that kind of stuff, how much of that just filters down to consumer level? and becomes part of the, is this for advisors or is this for the end customer? I'm not sure about that. I guess probably. I'm not sure how much the FCA is thinking about the end customer in all of this. It's a bit of both, isn't it? I mean, 
if it takes three days for a transfer to go through or your advisor's sitting, you know, four hours on the phone waiting for a response to a problem or a, or a stuff up from a provider or a platform, you know, the, the consumer is going to go to know about it. So I think it's a bit of both, really. I mean, the FCA, as you said, I would love them to just focus on the, the simple things such as improved service and you know, cut down wait times for responses and you know, the simplification of service. But as you said before, I think the FCA does like to complicate things and use big language and not overstep, but get a bit excited if you want to put it that way. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, that's that's a good point about it's not just about the end consumer, is it? Because we did a study a few years ago, and this this going to turn into a bit of a landcat plug here. So this is a we interrupt this message for a brief word from our sponsors, but uh, we uh, helped produce a paper a few years ago, and, and part of that we tried to measure the wasted time in the sector. So with non-value add stuff, so stuff that's just manual intervention and fixes and administration and time on the phone. The kind of distribution curve of that was almost bang on 25%. So 15 minutes for every hour within an advice firm is deemed to be wasted, for want of a better phrase. Now, even for allowing for a little bit of exaggeration for frustration and what have you, that's like not a great reflection on processes behind the scenes at provider level, not at, not at advisor level. We're just about to do another study on similar topic of integration and process failure and success and, and all that kind of stuff. So this, it does have a real meaningful effect, this kind of thing on, on advice firms' day-to-day lives. And all of that is time that could be spent either serving more customers or you know, developing firms or career paths. And or charging their such, customers less. Or charging, or, or indeed charging their <laughs> I mean, customers less. Theoretically, time. obviously, yes. <laughs> um, look, okay, so the, the last area I wanted to touch on is the direct-to-consumer market. And we've seen Andy Bell's new Muppet or... <laughs> Wookie, whatever, whatever it is that he's launched is is that a game changer because i'm just really conscious that you know 90 percent of the population doesn't talk to advisors and there are some some big direct consumer platforms and there are people engaging with the industry but there are an awful lot of people who aren't is is that ever going to change uh I, i'll go briefly first so yeah the, the dtc market as, as we all know is dominated by two or three big providers and then a long tail of of other participants and, and specialists. You're right, Tom, it's depending on which study you believe, it's you know, either seven or eight or nine or 10%, so certainly not more than 10. So what's going to come around and help that next decile or the decile below that? I, I don't know. What's really interesting is that with the likes of AJ Bell and its, its fledging DTC service, you've got Aberdeen purchasing Interactive Investor, you've got M&G Group mm. taking a stake in Money Farm. The way we put it in our in our platform report, it's almost like the chess pieces are moving a little bit. And our large organizations starting to formulate their, their strategy for the for that next next segment of clients. And as you know, Tom, with all, all of your work, there's a you know an, an avalanche of small to medium-sized pot business coming over the horizon in the next generation from workplace savings. And something's going to have to rationalize that and sweep all that up and turn it into a, a tangible service advised or simplified or guided or otherwise. So I, I think it's going to look fundamentally different in a number of years from now. But no one's really nailed that, whether you want to call it robo or hybrid or digital, no one's absolutely nailed that yet. No, uh, and there's, the a, there's, there's a lot of good stuff happening there. Oh, yeah, right. there's loads of good stuff. Yeah, but you're right. And so, so, I mean, it's an open question. Does it require a change of regulation to really 
be a game changer there? Or will will the sort of incremental work that businesses are doing, will, will, will that lead us to the promised land? What do you think, James? Is this in, to do with the uh, guidance versus advice boundary? Yeah, we always, every podcast we have to mention the advice guidance <laughs> lovely, boundary lovely. in this one. So, so thank you, James. Thank you That's okay. Well, Bingo. apparently a certain Antipodean journalist put out a story about a month or so ago. The Treasury is considering... So I'm told changes to the guidance and advice boundary, not for the first time. I mean, last time they didn't want to change anything, but apparently their viewpoint is changing and they're set to decide on changes to that later this year. But I do think DTC is going to get, you know, it's big now, especially for the Gen Zers and millennials, and it's just going to get bigger and bigger. I mean, you're not going to mop up, in my opinion anyway, you know, there's only 10% of advised clients and people with smaller amounts of money and you know, not high worth net worth individuals they're always going to go to that D2C market. It's easy. They can get on the phone, then get on the computer, and they can still invest and you know, do what they need to do, and they don't need that advice. So I think the Treasury really wants to, so I'm told anyway, wants to kind of push more towards that guidance to really help those savers invest and use that tech. And I think that's where D2C is really going to come more into its own over the next few years. That would be exciting. Mm, potentially. <laughs> Guys, thanks very much. It's been really good to, to walk through all that kind of stuff. So, so thank you, Steve. Thank you, James. You're welcome. Pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.